Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, District Attorney Fannie Willis awaits her fate. After several lengthy hearings, closing arguments just wrapped up. Arlene Richards has the key takeaways from today's testimony. The transcript from James Biden's testimony is out. Find out what President Biden's brother said about their family business dealings and why House lawmakers say there are contradictions. Security ramps up in Israel as Ramadan approaches. Will Israel allow access to the famous mosque in Jerusalem during the holiday? And President Biden reveals plans to deliver humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. Jason Perry reports. The funeral for Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, what the gathered crowd had to say and what the police presence looked like at the event. The Senate GOP leadership race has begun with eight months to go before the election. Find out who's in the mix. Luis Martinez reports from D.C. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. In Fulton County, Georgia, a hearing on whether to disqualify District Attorney Fannie Willis has concluded today. The judge said a verdict will arrive within the next two weeks. Here to discuss the legal implications is NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards. Arlene, what was the defense team arguing today? Well, they basically were rehashing the arguments they have made throughout these proceedings that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade uh, lied to the tribunal when they said their relationship started in 2022. Uh, they said there's been testimony that the relationship actually started before she hired him in November 2021 and that she hired him so that she could benefit financially uh, from this case. The case is a sprawling, you know, RICO case with 19 defendants. It's, it's going to take hours and hours for him to get up to speed on this case, and he's making lots of money from it. Um, they're asking the judge to disqualify both of them because of the appearance of impropriety. Hmm. And on the flip side, what was uh, Fannie Willis's team's defense or response? So the defense, of course, is that you haven't you haven't proven your case, right? You haven't shown that she's benefiting financially because she said she paid cash. Her father confirmed that and corroborated it. And you haven't shown anything otherwise. Um, you, you know, so what? They had a relationship. You know, people get into a relationship that didn't have any impact on the overall case itself. And they say that you didn't show uh, a conflict of interest. You didn't point out what the conflict was and how it prejudiced the defendants in this case. And so they're saying there's no reason for the two of them to be disqualified. And given all that we have seen and heard, what should we expect next in this case? So next, the judge is going to take a look at all of the facts and the testimony and the, and the legal cases that were presented today, and he's going to make a determination as to whether or not she should be disqualified. Now, if he decides that she should be disqualified, that disqualifies the whole entire DA's office, as well as Nathan Wade. There's also some ethical issues that have come up. Number one, that they lied to the tribunal, uh, and so they will probably have to face uh, an ethics commission on this. There's actually uh, some investigations already ongoing and there will be uh, a hearing on March 7th with the ethics commission commission uh, regarding some complaints against her. And, um, you know, the judge has a tough decision to make here. You know, it's it's one, on the one hand, you know, there's been a lot of things brought out that seem to appear to be uh, 
impropriety on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, it wasn't clear that she was benefiting financially from this. So he's going to have to weigh everything and come up with a decision, and he said it's going to take two weeks. A lot at stake here for sure. Arlene Richards, thanks for those updates. All right, thank you. In another case, former President Trump appeared in court today. He's seeking to push back his classified documents case in Florida. His lawyer asking the judge to delay the trial until after the general election. The trial is currently set to begin on May 20th. Federal prosecutors sought to push it back to July 8th, just one week before the Republican National Convention. But Trump's lawyers said the former president can't have a fair trial while campaigning. They also argued that it would be unfair to prepare for the classified documents trial amid the ongoing hush money case in New York. Today's ruling ended without the judge setting a new trial date. Trump faces several counts of willful retention of national defense information and obstruction. His co-defendants face obstruction charges. All three have pleaded not guilty. And we have updates on the House impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The House Oversight Committee has released the transcript of their private interview with the president's brother, James Biden. The committee says that James Biden's testimony conflicts with that of Hunter Biden and business associate Tony Bobolinsky. Both Hunter Biden and Bobolinsky testified that they and James Biden met Joe Biden at a hotel in California. James Biden said this never happened. James Biden's testimony conflicts with other witness testimony about whether Joe Biden met with the chairman of Chinese energy firm CEFC. The transcript also shows that James Biden received massive loans from Democrat donors, but hasn't repaid them. And in one instance, James Biden recalled that Hunter Biden received a diamond to entice him to do business with CEFC. Israel says they support the freedom of religion, but will they allow Muslims to pray at the famous mosque in Jerusalem during Ramadan? Meanwhile, President Biden announces a plan to address the humanitarian aid crisis in the Gaza Strip. Entities Jason Perry has the details. Palestinians held Friday prayers at Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Israel has increased security around the Temple Mount, the site of the famous mosque, since the war with Hamas began on October 7th. But with Ramadan approaching and security concerns increasing, many are wondering if Israel will allow people to worship at Al-Aqsa Mosque during the Islamic holy month of fasting. It could be easier said than done. A leader of the Hamas terrorist group called on Palestinians to march to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem beginning on the first day of Ramadan. Israel's defense minister on Thursday said this in response to Hamas's call to action. Hamas's top goal at this time is to cause a flare-up in Temple Mount so that we are forced to take some of the pressure off Hamas and move resources and forces to the West Bank and Jerusalem. We must not give them that. An Israeli government spokesperson on Thursday said the issue of allowing access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque during Ramadan is still under review. And he added this. Mosques across the country will be open. There will be prayers and, uh, and, and commemoration of Ramadan across Israel because Israel is a state that honors and respects all religions and freedom of religion. 
Meanwhile, in the Gaza Strip, residents held Friday prayers at this mosque in Rafah, which had been destroyed by an apparent Israeli airstrike. Why destroy and bomb houses of God? What is the fault of the children who are orphaned in the face of this destruction? Israel Defense Forces previously reported that both Hamas and the Islamic Jihad terrorist groups have repeatedly used mosques in the Gaza Strip for weapon storage and meetings before carrying out terrorist attacks. Also on Friday, President Biden addressed the humanitarian aid crisis in the Gaza Strip. In the coming days, we're going to join with our friends in Jordan and others in providing airdrops of, of uh, additional food and supplies into Ukraine and seek to continue to open up other avenues into Ukraine. It appears Biden misspoke and said Ukraine instead of the Gaza Strip. Biden's comments come just a day after thousands of people swarmed humanitarian aid trucks entering the Gaza Strip. Over 100 people were reportedly killed in the incident. Jason Perry, NTD News. In Russia, the late opposition leader Alexei Navalny has been laid to rest at a cemetery. Hundreds of mourners gathered for his funeral in Moscow earlier today. Navalny supporters said several churches in Moscow refused to hold a service. His team eventually got permission from one, and the funeral was carried out under the watch of police. Crowd control barriers surrounded the church. Those who attended the funeral included Navalny's mother and several foreign diplomats, among them the U.S. ambassador to Russia. Thousands lined the streets where the funeral procession took place. Some shouted slogans like, Russia will be free and no to war. Police were also present at the burial. Back in the U.S., Republican senators are already gearing up for a contest to replace GOP leader Mitch McConnell. It will be the first change in Republican Senate leadership in 18 years. Our Washington correspondent Louise Martinez has more on the story. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's announcement that he will be stepping down from his leadership role has added a new layer of complexity to this year's election cycle. For the next eight months, senators aspiring to succeed Leader McConnell will be carefully evaluated ahead of November's Senate GOP leadership elections. The so-called Three Johns, Senator John Thune of South Dakota, John Cornyn of Texas, and John Barrasso of Wyoming are the most prominent prospects. All three have been McConnell's deputies at some point in the last 17 years, and all three have endorsed former President Trump to become the party's presidential nominee. Republicans are aspiring to regain control of the White House and the Senate in November's elections. For some Republican senators, a fundamental quality the next GOP Senate leader should have is a good relationship with the party leader. And according to Senator Steve Marshall, that is Donald Trump. It's important, though, that whoever this leader is, that they share the same priorities as President Trump, uh, that they have the same goals, that it is important to have a good working relationship with that person. Former President Donald Trump has encouraged Senator Steve Daines from Montana to launch his own bid. Senator Daines is the National Republican Senatorial Committee chair. Senator Rick Scott of Florida, who challenged McConnell's leadership position and failed in 2022, is expected to seek the role again. The Senate Republican leadership elections will be in November after the presidential elections. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Luis Eduardo Martinez, NTD News. 
A new development in the corruption probe against Senator Bob Menendez. New Jersey businessman Joe Uribe has agreed to cooperate with authorities after pleading guilty to seven charges. Some of the charges include conspiracy to commit bribery, honest service fraud, and obstruction of justice. He is the first accused co-conspirator to enter a guilty plea. As part of the deal, he will testify on trial starting in May. Uribe was one of the three businessmen Men Menendez is accused of helping in exchange for gifts like gold bars and a Mercedes convertible. Menendez is also accused of accepting bribes to help Egypt and Qatar. Despite pressure from both parties, the New Jersey Democrat denies the charges and has refused to step down. A new court ruling today might change the sentencing of more than 100 January 6th defendants. A federal appeals court has ordered a new sentence for retired Air Force officer Larry Brock. Brock was convicted of a felony charge and misdemeanor offenses. He received a two-year prison sentence last year. The court didn't deny his convictions, but said a judge misapplied an enhancement that increased his prison sentence. A spokesperson for the Washington U.S. Attorney's Office said the same enhancement was applied to more than 100 other J6 defendants. The Justice Department is deciding whether to appeal the decision. If the DOJ proceeds, it could send the case to the Supreme Court. Coming up, a Republican immigration bill may get support from an unlikely camp. What would this mean for border security? Ariane Postar has the update from Texas. The Smokehouse Creek fire became the largest in Texas history. A hot weather warning now issued for the weekend. And a major California city is mandated to remove all homeless encampments near waterways. Find out what the mayor is saying. That's coming up. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A major Republican immigration bill might get support from a Democratic senator. Could this bring significant change to the border? NTD's Arian Pazdar brings us an immigration update from Texas. Democratic Senator John Fetterman says he might support H.R. 2, also known as the Secure the Border Act. House Republicans passed a sweeping immigration bill last year, but it was dead on arrival at the Senate. This could now change if some Democratic senators, like John Fetterman, get behind it. I wanted to learn more about the importance of this bill, so I spoke with Todd Bensman. He's a senior fellow with the Center for Immigration Studies. If it were to pass, would it bring immediate change to the border, you think? Yes. Immigrants tend to come only in large numbers, mainly when they know for sure that they're going to get in. Uh, it's a great bill. It's got uh, requirements for deportation, uh, for amending the asylum law so that it can't be abused in mass. Uh, it, it eliminates um, the CBP-1 app, the use of parole uh, that's being abused right now. Now, critics of this bill say that it is not humane. After the House passed it last year, top Democrats said that it would restrict asylum too much. They alleged that it would make it impossible to seek asylum in the United States. So it's not clear if more Senate Democrats would get behind the bill now. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, Texas. 
The Smokehouse Creek Fire is now the largest in Texas history and the second largest in U.S. history. The blaze has also spread into Oklahoma. NTD's Christina Corona gives us an update on the deadly fire. The Smokehouse Creek Fire, covering an area larger than Rhode Island, continues to spread rapidly, posing a significant threat to nearby communities. According to the Texas A&M Forest Service, the fire has engulfed over 1 million acres, equivalent to 1,600 square miles, and is 15% contained, resulting in more residents losing their homes. By the time we got here, we had just enough time to get our animals, some clothes, our emergency kit, and get out. We had to watch from three miles away as, as our neighborhood burned. It was pretty awful. The blaze has spread across tens of thousands of acres into Oklahoma. Snow fell in the town of Stinnett while winds and temperatures dipped Thursday. However, the fires were still untamed and threatening. The Texas Panhandle braces for very dry, hot winds and low humidity, heightening the risk of new fires igniting and existing ones spreading. 20-foot winds are expected Saturday out of the southwest at 15 to 25 miles per hour, with gusts up to 40 miles per hour, with relative humidity as low as 6%. The winds will progress stronger Sunday at 20 to 35 miles per hour, gusting up to 50 miles per hour, and relative humidity as low as 8%. The National Weather Service in Amarillo has issued a red flag warning for these hazardous conditions. They posted on X, critical fire weather conditions are expected to return midday Saturday and once again after sunrise Sunday. Please refrain entirely from outdoor activities that generate sparks or flames. Uh, you know, it's around here, the weather's, <laughs> we get all seasons in a week. You know, it can be hot, hot and windy. It'll be snowing the next day. It's just kind of that time of year, but it has been really, really dry here lately. Only two deaths have been confirmed due to the wildfires. Christina Corona, NTD News. Homeless encampments continue to appear in public spaces amid a housing crisis. In a bold move on the West Coast, California is mandating the removal of all encampments near a Silicon Valley waterway. NTD's David Lamb has the details. I'm here in San Jose, California, which is considered the capital of Silicon Valley. Now, the mayor says there's a big problem. The waterways, which stretches about 140 miles, is contaminated, and the state will be fining the city if they don't do anything about the tents, which there's over 1,000 people living in them or unsheltered along the waterways. The city is not allowed to use its stormwater because it flows into the contaminated creeks, which the state will fine the city. The regional water board rejected our plan for the third time because it did not do enough to say how we were going to get people who are homeless out of the waterways and into some other safer place. But it's costly and the city wants to create more safe parking areas and interim housing to tackle the issue before its June 2025 deadline. The city used $2 million in state funding last fall to clear roughly 200 people with tents and RVs along one of the rivers in recent years, transferring the unhoused residents to housing sites. Nonprofit publication CalMatters says, but just 11% of those people made it into permanent housing, another 37% into temporary shelter. And one day, I hope that this creek will have significant biodiversity once again where nature thrives 
and kids can actually go and play in the clean water catching crawfish. Aside from the waterways, the mayor says 4,500 people live on the streets and the city has no additional money to tackle the issue. Mahan hopes to get another round of funding from Governor Gavin Newsom's Encampment Resolution Fund. San Jose Mayor Matt Mahan says the June 2025 deadline may be too short to come up with the right funds and solutions. So on March 11th, he'll be holding a virtual town hall to present lower barrier solutions to get more people off the streets quicker. Reporting in San Jose, California, David Lamb, NTD News. In California, a powerful winter storm has arrived in the Sierra Nevada. It's expected to bury the state under its biggest snowfall of the year. The storm will bring several feet of snow, powerful winds and rare blizzard conditions to the mountains through the weekend. Wind gusts in the highest peaks of the Sierra Nevada topped 150 miles per hour today. Nearly two feet of snow have already fallen with more extreme snowfall to come. Parts of the mountains could see up to 12 feet by the end of the weekend. The Weather Prediction Center warned of long-lasting disruptions to daily life in the area and said parts of Interstate 80 could be shut down for extended periods. Coming up to important court hearings today related to former President Trump, our guest says Trump is the first candidate to be forced to spend his campaign time attending legal trials. Hear his analysis of the two cases. And Elon Musk is suing Sam Altman, accusing him of betraying OpenAI's original mission to develop artificial intelligence without seeking profits. An attorney assesses the lawsuit when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. President Biden announced the U.S. will begin to airdrop humanitarian aid into Gaza. This comes as Israel ramped up security around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem as the Islamic holy month of Ramadan approaches. In Russia, thousands gathered for the funeral of the late opposition leader Alexei Navalny amid a heavy police presence. Navalny was then buried at a cemetery in Moscow. The House Oversight Committee released the transcript of their private interview with President Biden's brother, James Biden. Lawmakers say James Biden's testimony contradicted that of Hunter Biden and business associates. In Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's disqualification hearing concluded. The judge said he will make a decision in the next two weeks. Joining us now to discuss the two court hearings today related to former President Trump is David Gelman, criminal defense attorney and former federal prosecutor. David Gelman, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, in the Trump cases, there are two Trump hearings today, the doc classified documents case in Florida and the elections case in Georgia. Now, many are saying this could have a significant impact on Trump. What is, what is at stake here for Trump? Well, number one, uh, there's going to be an election interference claim, obviously, which President Trump has brought up multiple times in these cases. Uh, the Florida case is scheduled to begin in May. However, the judge has indicated that she is looking to push this back. Uh, I believe that Trump's team wants to have it pushed back, and I believe that would be for good reason. Again, election interference. Uh, the Georgia case also 
is uh, scheduled to begin sometime soon. However, obviously that has been getting a lot of press as well with Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade and uh, the uh, disqualification hearing being held and the judge is going to be giving his final uh, decision today about whether Fannie Willis and her office is to be disqualified or not. And in the event that the judge does declare Fannie Willis and the office to be disqualified, then that case is obvious that that case will be postponed for quite a bit. And I can't possibly see that happening prior to the election, which would obviously bode well for President Trump. Again, anything happening between now and the election, there's a great case for an election interference. Now, in the Florida documents case, Special Counsel Jack Smith filed a motion yesterday for a new trial date of July 8th. Now, Trump's team filed a motion a day earlier, wanting to push it back past the election. Now, Trump's team is also arguing the First and Sixth Amendments, saying that the Sixth Amendment affords him, as in Trump, the right to be present and to participate in the legal proceedings. And at the same time, the First Amendment affords him and the American people the right to engage in his campaign speech-making. Now, what do you make of those arguments? I think President Trump's lawyers uh, are exactly correct. You know, again, uh, Jack Smith has uh, filed for a motion to bar President Trump for uh, to talk about any of the legal proceedings that uh, are that President Trump is currently being charged with. Well, that is completely unfair and against any constitutional right that President Trump is afforded. The founding fathers of this country, you know, had made the Constitution for that exact purpose. You know, they, we were persecuted in England for that exact reason. So President Trump should be able to speak about, his, about the legal issues that he is being faced with, whether people want to hear it or not, or believe that it is true or not. Uh, I believe that, yes, there are. he does have legal merit. Now, regarding the Sixth Amendment issue, again, I think that, that there is uh, a legal merit that his lawyers are bringing up. I do not believe that President Trump should have to, again, go to court in the morning or in the afternoon and then have to go campaign at night. You know, Joe Biden doesn't have to do that or any other candidate has never had to do that. And, you know, there really is an unwritten rule that within 60 days of the uh, election, uh, a presidential candidate should only be having to campaign. So why is President Trump the only candidate in history having to actually go to potentially having to go to court instead of it going to campaign? Now, over in Georgia, Trump and his co-defendants are delivering final arguments in the case to see if Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis will be disqualified. What has been the most significant relevations in that case so far? Well, there, there's a couple. Uh, number one, uh, Nathan Wade's legal attorney or divorce attorney, I should say, uh, Mr. Bradley, uh, he's been caught up in many, many ethical violations so far. You know, <clears throat> Excuse me. He stated uh, four previously in text messages to the defense attorney, Miss Merchant, that there that Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade's romantic relationship started in 2019, 
Now, he then was caught in a lie, and he started saying, oh, wait, I don't remember then when this happened, or I may be wrong, or I, you know, I don't remember. I, you know, he, he pretty much, you know, impeached himself and his credibility. That is one thing that is pretty bad. Then Fannie Willis has stated multiple times that she repaid Nathan Wade, who had a contract because Fannie Willis hired him, but for and the contract is paid by the state of Georgia. So she was enriched because of by Nathan Wade because he took her on trips. She paid him back with cash, allegedly. So she's saying that she uh, paid him back in the range of about $9,000. There's no receipts. There's no bank statements that have been uh, given to the uh, judge or to any parties. That is a, uh, a big uh, ethical violation in itself. Uh, so right now, there's an appearance of impropriety. Now, the judge doesn't need to show that there was lies to the court. Just see that there is an appearance that these parties potentially lied. And I think that the judge is going to show or see that they potentially lied. A lot to unpack there for sure. David Gelman, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Super Tuesday is fast approaching and NTD News will be covering all the action. We'll have a lot prepared for you, including special guests, on the ground coverage and the data hub. Join Steve Lance and myself on The Nation Decides 2024 live next Tuesday, March 5th at 6 p.m. Eastern. Elon Musk is suing Sam Altman, accusing him of prioritizing profits op over OpenAI's original mission to develop artificial intelligence for the benefit of humanity. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. Billionaire tech mogul Elon Musk is suing Sam Altman, as well as OpenAI president Greg Brockman and OpenAI itself. Musk says he played a crucial role in getting OpenAI off the ground, donating $44 million and recruiting top talent, all based on the agreement that the company would be a nonprofit that worked to benefit humanity. Now, he says OpenAI has shifted to a for-profit model, partnering with Microsoft and commercializing its research, not what Musk originally agreed to. He states it, that that was their intent, but there's no backup document or corroboration that would support it, apart from some language in the Articles of Incorporation, which is very vague, and Articles of Incorporation or certificates filed with the relevant Secretary of State, they're often high-flown, uh, include high-flown language, which can't be legal, legally enforced. Former assistant U.S. attorney Kevin O'Brien sees many problems with Musk's claim. One is that there doesn't seem to be any evidence of a contract that was breached. This could go against him in court. Another problem, he's suing the other two main founders of OpenAI. That says something about the strength of Mr. Musk's case. He is alone out of the three founders who allegedly agreed to have an open, not-for-profit enterprise. O'Brien says that Musk is alone in his claim and that the defendants will likely use this against him. Musk also leads XAI, which competes directly with OpenAI. His lawsuit seeks to force OpenAI into adhering to its original mission and bar it from monetizing its technologies. Virginia Gibson, NTD News.
European consumer rights groups are accusing Meta of conducting a large-scale and unlawful data collection operation. The groups say the operation involves hundreds of millions of users in Europe. NTD's Don Ma has more. A European consumer rights group alleges Meta, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, is carrying out a massive and illegal operation of collecting data from hundreds of millions of users. Eight groups from the European consumer organization accused the social media company of collecting an unnecessary amount of information on its users, such as data used to infer their sexual orientation, emotional state, or even their susceptibility to addiction. In a statement, the group said that with its illegal practices, Meta fuels the surveillance-based ads system, which tracks consumers online and gathers vast amounts of personal data for the purpose of showing them adverts. The groups argue that the company's practices breach parts of the European Union's data privacy law. Meta disputes the allegations. A company spokesperson said in a statement that, quote, we take our regulatory obligations extremely seriously, adding that it is confident that the company complies with the general data protection regulations. Regulation. For years, Meta has been the subject of intense regulatory scrutiny in Europe. The new complaints will potentially expose the company to yet more legal action. Last May, EU regulators fined the tech giant a record-breaking $1.3 billion for violating the general data protection regulation by transferring the personal data of Facebook users to servers in the United States. Don Ma, NTD News. Coming up, a federal judge holds investigative reporter Catherine Herridge in contempt. Our guest says this ruling sets a terrible precedent. Hear his take on the case. A new documentary reveals Hong Kong's fight for freedom. Find out why Hong Kongers are eager to have their voices heard. That's coming up. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. People who test positive for COVID-19 no longer need to quarantine for five days. That's according to new guidelines issued today from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The agency said it's updating its recommendations for COVID-19 to bring them in line with other kinds of respiratory infections like influenza. The CDC now says people should stay home until they've been fever-free without medication for at least 24 hours and their symptoms are improving. Agency experts say it's then fine to resume regular activities. But they recommend taking extra precautions for the following five days, like improving ventilation, masking and limiting close contact with others. A federal judge in D.C. on Thursday held investigative reporter Catherine Herridge in civil contempt for refusing to divulge a source. The judge imposed a fine of $800 per day until Herridge reveals her source. The journalist left Fox News in 2019, where she had been reporting about a Chinese-American scientist who was suspected of ties to the Chinese military and who was investigated by the FBI but not charged. To discuss the implications of the ruling, we have attorney Hans Munke. He is the host of Truth Over News on Epic TV. Hans Munke, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, U.S. District Judge Christopher Cooper is holding longtime investigative journalist Catherine Herridge in contempt. This is for not divulging a source. Now, from a legal standpoint, how do you read this? 
This is very problematic. I mean, this is because this goes straight to the First Amendment, because, of course, the First Amendment says that you can say whatever you want, but saying whatever you want, including not saying anything at all. And um, that, of course, is something, uh, you know, extremely problematic that he's forcing her to uh, give up her source. And so right now she's being fined $800 a day until she reveals her source. Now, on that note, the judge himself is also saying that he, quote, recognizes the paramount importance of a free press in our society. But then he goes on to say, as in about Catherine Herridge, that she is not permitted to flout a federal court's order with impunity. What precedent is this setting? This is setting an absolutely terrible precedent. And um, as we all know, it's very common for journalists to put out stories attributed to sources. A source told me, uh, according to sources, I mean, this is a kind of a running joke even among, I guess, Trump supporters that all these anti-Trump stories have uh, th that phrase attached to it, according to sources or according to a source. Well, who are these sources, right? But we never find out. And there's some really egregious cases. There's, for instance, the General Flynn case. Um, he was outed by the Washington Post in uh, January of 2017. By the way, wrongly outed. So the leak in that case was a, was a false leak. Well, that was a story written by David Ignatius. Has David Ignatius ever been fined for not saying who that uh, source was? Of course not. Nothing ever happens in these cases. So um, I think the distinction really is, is a political one, um, depending on whom you are uh, uh, protecting or who you are, uh, w what sort of journalist you are, uh, will you know, make all the difference. And Hans, you have highlighted this judge, Christopher Cooper's past actions. Tell us about that and how that ties into this case with Catherine Herridge. Well, Christopher Cooper is a, is a very problematic judge. Um, he was the presiding judge in the uh, trial of Michael Sussman. So your viewers will remember, Michael Sussman was the Clinton campaign lawyer who was charged by special counsel John Durham for uh, lying to the FBI. So he brought some false evidence to the FBI. I don't want to get into all the details, but it was uh, some false evidence tying Trump to, to the Kremlin, you know, the usual story. And the FBI discovered very quickly that it was false evidence. Now, uh, Michael Sussman claimed that uh, he was just there as a private citizen. You know, he was just a good Samaritan. In fact, it was the Clinton campaign who was paying him to be there. Now, that was the issue at trial. Now, there was a text message from Sussman to the FBI that said, oh, I'm just coming as a private citizen. So, you know, just smoking gun evidence that he lied. And this judge, Christopher Cooper, threw that evidence out. So uh, the jury never got to see that evidence. Um, he made a number of other very problematic rulings in that case. And then if you dig a bit further into this guy, you'll figure out that his wife is a prominent Democrat lawyer. His wife represents Lisa Page. Lisa Page, of course, was part of the uh, Page and Strzok lover pair at the FBI, the two people who uh, colluded to smear Trump in the, uh, in the 2016 election and, and after that. So... Uh, there's a lot of uh, problems with this guy. Oh, his marriage with that Democrat lawyer. Guess who officiated that? Merrick Garland. <laughs> you know, it's D.C. incestuousness, and this guy embodies it. And for him to be the guy to come out with such an awful judgment, you know, is, is both shocking but also typical. On that note, how do you see this case impacting the future of journalism? Will it be harder to get sources? How do you see this playing out? Um, I, I think it will be in the sense that um, any uh, journalist will now think, well, what if it's me? What if I'm the one who's uh, going to be fined $800 a day uh, un unless I reveal a source? I mean, this is just terrible. Sets an absolutely terrible precedent. Now, of course, in practice, 
um, how many uh, journalists will find themselves in that position? Probably not many, because you know most of them are pretty tame compared to uh, uh, Catherine Herridge. So I think it's one of those situations which, unfortunately, we're seeing so much right now, where one side is being targeted and the other is not. Hans Manka, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. A new documentary about Hong Kong will soon be released. It details residents' fight for democracy before falling under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. A new film called Hong Kong, Final Days of Freedom is coming out. The documentary follows Hong Kong's battle for democracy following the protests that exploded after the extradition bill proposed in 2019 and the controversial national security law that followed. NTD attended a film screening in Los Angeles on February 28th and spoke with the director, Sean Fleck, who was in Hong Kong at the time. Well, we hope in this film that it conveys the plight that the Hong Kongers went through and their trouble with the CCP on how they were promised, you know, government, their own freedom to 2047 and how that was taken away very early. And so we just want to make people aware of the issues going on in Hong Kong, the issues going on with the Uyghurs who are jailed on the mainland, and also the issue with Taiwan. So we just want to make people aware. And also, our film is a bipartisan film. So we have Republicans and Democrats actually coming together, talking about the issue and feeling the same as well. So you'll see that in the film. So we hope you The film features exclusive interviews with protesters, professors, politicians, and activists. It sheds light on how, after 2019, the controversial law has transformed a vibrant international business mecca into a Chinese-controlled police state. Hong Kong cannot go back to what it was like before. We used to be able to say whatever we wanted, but it's not like that anymore. It's not the place we grew up in. I know it's necessary to be patriotic. It's from the bottom of my heart, but in my mind, it's not love for the party. Don't underestimate Hong Kong just because it's small. You destroy Hong Kong today, that backfire effect is going to lead to the demise of the Chinese Communist Party. I believe that's going to be the case. Flex said they were very secretive about contacting people to conduct interviews. They used encrypted apps and never ran into problems. Hong Kongers were also eager to get their voices out. You know, they worked their whole life for freedom and democracy, and to end up like this is very heartbreaking. The screening ended with the song, Glory to Hong Kong. Audience members applauded and shook hands with the director. Fleck plans to preview the film at festivals before speaking with distributors to set a platform for streaming. Turning now to sports and college basketball, reigning player of the year Caitlin Clark has made an announcement about her future. The popular women's star is already the NCAA's career leader in points scored and has become an attraction wherever she plays. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Iowa guard Caitlin Clark has decided to enter the WNBA draft, where she will likely be the number one pick. The senior had an option to return to school for one more season because of the extra year of eligibility given to those who played during the COVID pandemic. Already one of the biggest draws in women's basketball history, the impending departure is likely to make tickets for her home finale a hot item. As of Thursday, the cheapest seat listed on TickPick.com was just over $480. Meanwhile, courtside seats were listed as high as $5,500. Last month, 
Clark became the women's all-time leading scorer. In addition, she should soon pass former men's great Pistol Pete Maravich for the all-time men's or women's record. This year, the 22-year-old Clark leads the NCAA in both points and assists per game, leading the Hawkeyes to a 25-4 record and a number 6 national ranking. And in golf news, former PGA star Anthony Kim made his return to professional golf this week after a nearly 12-year hiatus. The three-time PGA winner was once ranked as high as sixth in the world before injuries eventually led him to retire at the age of 26. Friday, the 38-year-old shot a 6-over-76 in the first round of a live golf event in Saudi Arabia, placing him last among the 54-player field. Kim disappeared from the golf world after withdrawing after the first round of the Wells Fargo Championship in May of 2012. He had surgery the next month to repair an Achilles injury in his right leg and hasn't played professionally since. Kim, who once helped the U.S. to a Ryder Cup win, reportedly lost touch with nearly everyone in the golf world, leading him to be referred to as golf's Yeti. Now, he stands 14 strokes out of first place after one round in his return. A native of California, Kim is scheduled to play in the United States next month at Trump Doral in Miami. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.